Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is touchdown by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? We dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio, powered by Postano. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Thanks for checking out the only show dedicated to covering the business side of sports. We're 11 years in counting, if you can believe it. We're happy to be powered by our friends at Postano. Follow them online at Pistano.com or on Twitter at Pistano. We've got a jam-packed show lined up for you this week. Nate Checkett, who is the co-founder of a really cool company called Roan Apparel. That's R-H-O-N-E. And uh, I like how their stuff is made. It's really well made. Uh, did you know that the average sports apparel, after 15 washes, it starts stinking? Well, Roan Apparel doesn't stink after 15 Washes and again, really well made. Nate Chackets is the son of uh, Dave Chackets, who you may know from being a longtime sports and business executive. He actually became the youngest GM of the Utah Jazz at age 28 back in the day. So uh, Nate Chackets is going to join us on the show this week. Neil Horowitz, if you like digital and social media, you're not going to want to miss this conversation. This guy is an expert. It was an epic week. Last week with Twitter, with all the emojis, with DeAndre Jordan and the Clippers and um, Jason Pierre-Paul and his image being posted by Adam Schefter on Twitter. A lot of other emerging technologies. Neil Horwitz will join us. And then Karina LeBlanc. She is a goalkeeper for Team Canada, the women's soccer team. She's been with the team since 1998, but she just played in her last World Cup. Here's what we will talk about. 25 million fans tuned in to watch the U.S. play Japan in the Women's World Cup final. How can women's soccer capitalize on that momentum that they've built? We saw when U.S. women's soccer won World Cup in 1999. A pro soccer league started after that, but then it failed. What did they learn from that? that will help them this time around capitalizing on the momentum of women's soccer. We'll talk to Karina LeBlanc about that coming up on our show today. I'm joined by our executive producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? I'm doing good, and I did watch that World Cup game and some other games. It was pretty exciting and fun to watch, and uh, obviously the U.S. took the took the cup, so that's exciting. And, uh, man, I mean, what a, what a fun NBA uh, free agency, too. What a whirlwind that's been. So lots of fun in the summer so far for sports. Yeah, let's start with uh, DeAndre Jordan. So it looked like he was going to Dallas. Then he changes his mind. You know, we saw all the tweets from Blake Griffin and from J.J. Redick and um, the emojis. And then we saw, you know, Mark Cuban's Cyberdust app get tons of exposure because every time he had something to say, he did it via his app Cyberdust. So that got tons of you know, good PR and exposure. It was an interesting time. At the end of the day, it doesn't sound like the moratorium is going to change for free agents, but I really think something needs to change because when you have a team like the Mavericks who gets a verbal commitment from someone like DeAndre Jordan, I know it's not written, 
but they planned their off season and how they were going to shape their roster based on that word from him. And, you know, as I've said on several other people's shows, I don't have a problem with DeAndre Jordan changing his mind, but the way he did it, just be a man, just call Mark Cuban on the phone. Don't duck his call and say, you know what? I changed my mind. I think I'm making a mistake here. I'm going back to the Clippers. But the fact he didn't do that, that's what was disappointing to me, Griggs. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, it's, it just goes back to, can you keep your word? Can you keep with it? And, and what kind of a trustworthy person are you? And I think it, it set off a whirlwind of uh, craziness. But, uh, I mean, that's sporting, sporting people at their finest, right? <laughs> the other thing I thought regarding the NBA this week that was uh, very interesting, and, and I think it's just, you know, it's the first shot at the Players Union, is NBA Commissioner Adam Silver said on the record this week that there are still NBA teams that are losing money. Griggs, how is that possible with the influx of TV money that's coming in with the league doing really well? How are you losing money? Either you're mismanaging your roster or you're spending way too much money on players. I mean, God bless Amir Johnson, but when someone's paying him $12 million to a year to play basketball, that's the owner's fault. So, you know, we're going to see there's going to be the big showdown between the NBA owners and players, but already you can see the rhetoric ramping up when Adam Silver says that NBA teams are losing money. And, you know, the thing that's different this time around, Griggs, is that LeBron James is the president of the union. Chris Paul is the vice president. And Michelle Roberts, who doesn't take any guff, as my dad would say, uh, is the new executive director. They're a powerful trio, and they're not going to fall for the rhetoric or the owners. So, you know, again, we're a little bit away from this showdown, but uh, some of that rhetoric is already ramping up. Yeah, it is, and it is fascinating that teams in the NBA are losing money and other sporting teams too, but uh, <clears throat> with all the – and you hear about these huge dollars they're paying players, and you're like, how does that guy make that much money? And then you look at their books, and they're losing money. It's, it's fascinating to me, and uh, there's a lot of corruption in, in all the leagues, but I think the NBA uh, definitely with, with those teams losing money, that is just – it's staggering. Well, so in the NFL, there were threats of collusion from the NFL Players Association against the NFL owners – why were Des Bryant and Demarius Thomas not being signed? So, uh, you know, after the threats of collusion, after it came down to the 11th hour, we finally saw Des Bryant and Demarius Thomas signed by their respective teams. Des Bryant by the Cowboys, Demarius Thomas by the Broncos. Each of them signed a five-year, $70 million deal. Des Bryant got a little bit more in guaranteed money, $45 million guaranteed, versus Demarius Thomas at $42.5 million guaranteed. Then Justin Houston, who's a defensive player for the Kansas City Chiefs, he signed a six-year, $101 million deal with 52.5 guaranteed. So huge contracts in the NFL this week, Griggs. But we don't hear those owners saying, I'm poor and I'm losing money like we do from the NFL owners or like we do from the NBA owners. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's shocking, too, with NFL salaries. I mean, that used to be some of the lower-paid uh, players in, in sports, and now it's just these contracts are massive for NFL players. It's it's fascinating to see how, how much every year these guys are signing these bigger deals and guaranteed money of like forty five million and things like that. It's NFL. I mean, these guys could be hurt in one play and be done, and uh, they're paying them this much money. It's crazy. See, but I've always said, and, and for the students out there that listen to this show, guaranteed money is all you're guaranteed from an NFL contract. So when you see five right. years, seventy million dollars, you may not see that whole amount. So, you know, the NFL, which has one of the briefest career spans of any sport because it's such a physical sport, 
if you can get the guaranteed money, great. And we're seeing those guarantees go up, Griggs, because players and their agents are saying exactly what you just said. It could all be over in one play. So, you know, my guy's got to protect himself. Everything else is part of the contract. $70 million, that's just a, a number on a piece of paper. The only thing that my client can really depend on is the $45 million guaranteed, or in the case of Justin Houston, the $52.5 million guaranteed. But what I think a lot of people ask themselves, other than a quarterback, you know, which is the franchise player, your Russell Wilsons, your Tom Brady's, your Peyton Manning's, Aaron Rodgers, is it worth giving that much guaranteed money to a wide receiver? To a defensive player, uh, you know, we saw JJ Watt sign a huge contract last year. This, uh, Justin Houston contract is actually more money average per year than JJ Watt got. So it's, it's staggering those contracts. Another NFL note, Griggs, we knew this was coming. Greg Hardy, his suspension reduced from 10 games to four games. And there's talk it could go all the way down to two. So again, you know, the NFL rules on something, they back off of it, and there's an appeals process. And, you know, all the common fan cares about at the end of the day is if someone like Greg Hardy committed an act of heinous domestic violence, they don't care what process it goes through. Just make it stick and make the penalty harsh and make them not do it again. And the fact that we repeatedly see penalties out there. Now, you know, Griggs, I think this influences the Tom Brady penalty. You can't give Brady more than four games for potentially taking some air out of a ball when here's a guy in Greg Hardy that beat a woman and and got four games. So how do you justify one taking air out of the ball is is more severe than the other beating a woman? You can't do that, can you? Not at all, and that's the problem with the NFL is there's just no um, – they just don't stick with their guns. It's like one guy gets this, the next guy gets this. They, re, they you know, rebuttal this. They turn this back around, and there's no consistency. And like you said, I mean, how can you compare the suspensions of the same amount of games with beating a woman and deflating a ball? I mean, it's not even, it's not even the same conversation. It's ridiculous. It's a joke. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, there was word this week that Tom Brady's reps have said that you know, there will be a, a lawsuit filed if his penalty isn't reduced. So, uh, we'll see how that all plays out. But again, if I'm the NFL, I can't justify to my fan base giving Tom Brady more than Greg Hardy as a suspension when Hardy did something a lot more severe in the eyes of most fans than what Tom Brady may or may not have done. Uh, a few other notes in sports business. Serena Williams and Novak Djokovic win Wimbledon titles. How about Serena going for the calendar grand slam? Nike's already gotten behind that, but, uh, you know, I think she's really cemented her place if she hadn't already. Griggs is the greatest female tennis player who ever lived. Oh, yeah. And she's just, she's an animal out there. I mean, it's like you watch her play in these matches and it's, there's just not even competition. You just know she's going to dominate the game and win the match, and and she's consistent and continues to do the same thing. And you know, I love watching tennis. I love watching Wimbledon, and uh, it's always fun. That grass court is fun to watch. But she dominates. I mean, she, I don't know. I don't see any end in, in the future for her. She's just uh, she's crushing it out there. Well, I mean, her serves are 125 miles an hour, which are in the same range as as the men. So yeah, you know, it's overpowering game that she has against the other the females out there that she's playing against. Uh, Justin Spieth is the heavy favorite to win this weekend's British Open. As we record this, he's in the mix, and uh, he's at five under. But uh, it's going to be tough, tough competition, a lot of really good names on the leaderboard. He's trying to become the only other player since Ben Hogan in the 50s 
to win the first three legs of the Golf Grand Slam in the same calendar year. We remember the Tiger Slam, so he won four in a row, but he didn't win four in a row in a calendar year. So Dustin Spieth really trying to make some history. And How about this, Griggs? So you've got Serena going for the Grand Slam in the calendar year. You've got Justin Spieth going for the Grand Slam in the calendar year. And we already have a triple crown winner for 2015. This could be an absolutely historic year that we never see the likes of again. Yeah, it's true. And it's fun to watch. I mean, I I really get, I think, people tuning into these sports maybe that others might not watch all the time, like horse racing and and tennis and sometimes golf, too, because there is that storyline behind it. And you're kind of hoping that, hey, this might be something that no one, you know, our kids aren't even going to see probably in the future. Who who knows? All right. Nate Chekets, the CEO and co-founder of Roan Apparel, Neil Horowitz, who is a digital and sports media uh, expert. He's really, really good. If you like digital and sports media, you're going to want to tune into that conversation. And then Karina LeBlanc, the goalkeeper for Team Canada. Don't forget, Canada hosted the World Cup, so we'll talk about that with her as well. She sat with the Prime Minister of Canada, Griggs, during the U.S.-Japan World Cup final. Not bad company to keep. Yeah, not at all. That'd be kind of fun to sit in there. Think of the insight you'd get sitting next to that uh figure in uh, in government and everything else crazy no kidding all right so karina leblanc also on our show uh coming up you're listening to sports business radio we'll be right back stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com podcasts blogs and more powered by postano sbr will be right back Hi, it's Brian Berger. Here at Sports Business Radio, we are proud to work with our partners, Pastano. They make a sports-proven visual marketing platform that I've personally been amazed to see. Teams like the Dallas Cowboys, Boston Red Sox, LA Kings, and Cleveland Cavaliers all use Pastano to engage their fans. When sports teams and fans tell their stories together, amazing things can happen. Every fan has a story. Whether you want to put selfies on the Jumbotron, create a dynamic social media command center, or activate a hashtag campaign on your website, Pistano can design an amazing social experience true to your brand. Even better, using the Pistano platform can pay for itself through selling sponsorships. As an example, the Kings sell sponsor space to Toyota and other clients and run the ads using Pistano. Want to see what your team's social content could look like? Schedule a demo today. Go to pistano.com slash sports. If you're a fan of this podcast, you understand the real power of engaging your fans. And these guys get it. That is P-O-S-T-A-N-O dot com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Nate Checkets. He is the co-founder of Roan Apparel. You can find them on Twitter at Roan Apparel. Nate, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Brian? I'm doing really well. First, I have to thank you. Uh, you recently sent me some really nice pieces of Roan Apparel. I've tried them. Uh, I have the highest of regard for your apparel. Uh, I worked out in them. You know, I really think it fits comfortably. Um, the sweat wicks away. So I really, I had not heard of your company before as we discussed off air and uh, I really like your product. So thanks again for uh, sending me some pieces. No problem. We're just trying to up your game and uh, <laughs> you know help you look as good as possible. I, need I know a, what that's like. Yeah, I need all the help I can get. So uh, definitely thank <laughs> you for that. So before we talk about Roan Apparel, Give us a little bit of your background. I know our listeners would be interested in hearing about you and, and kind of uh, your path to becoming the co-founder of Roan Apparel. Sure. So 
I, uh, I've always been an entrepreneur uh, since I can remember. Um, and I, I didn't always know that it was called that. When I was younger, I was always a kid running a lemonade stand. Uh, when I went out to visit my grandparents who they lived close to a golf course, I would kind of dive in the lakes and accumulate golf balls and sell them back <laughs> to the golfers. And, and I realized that if I could get my little sister to go hold the sign, we would kind of double our profits. Uh, and then when I was 15 or 16, um, I started, my mom told me, Hey, you need to earn money for your own summer camp. So I started a summer camp for kids teaching them how to play sports. And that's basically how I, I bought my first car and I paid for, you know, all the various things that I wanted to do over the summers. And that camp actually ran for eight years. My younger brothers took it over after me. Um, and so I've just always liked starting things. In college, um, I, I launched a company called Manja Technologies, which was the first of its kind. It allowed people to order food and merchandise uh, and just from their phone and allow it to be delivered straight to their seat. Um, that technology today is now owned by the San Francisco 49ers. If you've been to Levi Stadium, you can see that kind of same experience. So had a great experience building that company. And then I've spent the rest of my career in sports and tech. Um, I spent some time with Cisco Sports Entertainment, uh, Steve Ross and FanVision, and then at the NFL for a period of time, uh, working on some of their sponsorship strategies. And, uh, and most recently, when I left the NFL to launch Rhone Apparel, I also um, participated in an investment group that has invested in a few sports and media companies and currently serve on the board of, uh, of two of those companies, a company called Score Big and another company called Baritone Media. So you've got the entrepreneurial spirit. What led you to want to get into what many people is say would say is the crowded space of, of sportswear and apparel with Roan Apparel? I think, again, what you do and your product is, is very, very high quality, but it's a crowded space. Yeah, no question. I think like like most uh, businesses, it started because we felt there was a need. Um, and when I say a need, I, I kind of looked around. When I was at the NFL, I had access to a lot of free product. And one of the things that I noticed about these synthetic workout clothes is um, after 10 to 15 washes, they just smelled so bad. And my wife made a, cu a couple of comments to me like, hey, you just wash that shirt and it still smells. And, as you know, I don't consider myself to be a smelly person. So I always think <laughs> it kind of offensively. Like I shower, I wear deodorant. Um, but I started doing some research and I found that most of the workout clothing that we wear is treated with heavy chemicals. And those chemicals are there to protect against odor and bacteria, but the industry standard is they only have to last for 15 washes. Hmm. So what that meant for for all of us who go and work out heavy is every time we put on that workout shirt or short, it's getting worse at protecting it from odor and bacteria every time. And after 15 washes, which you know is definitely less than a year's worth of wearing, it starts to absorb that odor and that bacteria and not to mention that chemical has washed off into your skin and in your laundry. And so I started trying to figure out, well, what alternatives are there for odor and bacteria? I mean, you can certainly just not apply the chemical, but none of us want to be smelly every day. 
And I found that NASA and the special forces use an encapsulated silver thread that they weave into fabrics to fight odor and bacteria. Because if you're in the military and you're out on deployment for seven days and you can't wash your clothes, well, it better be fighting odor and bacteria. And you can't just have that kind of standard 15 wash um, selection. So, so we started looking at, well, what if you were to build a men's apparel line for working out and for hanging out that had the absolute best in class at fighting odor and bacteria? And it, you know, it costs more to make, but it, but it costs more because it costs more and it provided the absolute best in the space at every performance aspect when it comes to wicking, um, odor control and bacteria. And we thought if there's ever a group that needs this kind of clothing, it's active guys. And uh, as somebody in that category, we felt like there was nobody else who was doing that um, and doing it really, really well. So we've developed a brand that has the best in class performance apparel for men. And um, it's, you know, it's built for guys who want to look good and feel good when they're in the gym and when they're at home and really have these pieces transition. It's, our clothes aren't in bright colors with big logos. They're very masculine colors inspired by nature, very subtle logo placement and treatment so that you can go out with friends. You can um, travel on an airplane. You can um, certainly go to the gym, and you're going to look good in all three of those elements. So if one of my listeners says, hey, I want to try Roan Apparel, what would you tell them to start with? What are your top-selling pieces and you know, what's something that would be good for them to start with to introduce themselves to your brand? I'm, you know, I'm really proud of all of our pieces. We, we try hard, just like we didn't, we have not ever expanded into women's or children's. We try not to build products that we don't, you know, that we don't think we can give a reason to buy. Um, if, you know, all the big brands out there are making socks and shorts and shirts, we're not going to put something out there unless we feel like it can be substantially better than that. So I think if anybody comes and tries any of our pieces, I think they'll see the difference in why it's built better and why the quality is better and why the protection is better. Um, certainly our, our short sleeve shirts, uh, the century and the general have sold very, very well. And our shorts, the bullet and the maker shorts are terrific starting pieces for anybody who's new to the brand. Yeah, I really like you sent me the short sleeve and you sent me the long sleeve and, I like both of them. I'm kind of a long sleeve guy and, uh, I really like the fit of the long sleeve. So, um, you know, those were the pieces that, that I've experienced. And, um, I know you sell online at roanapparel.com, but where can people find you at retail? Well, that's, you know, when we first started, we only intended to go direct to consumer. And the only reason why we've expanded to some wholesale opportunities is because we think it gives us, we think it gives customers a chance to touch the product in person and really see and feel the difference. So we've been fortunate. The brand's only 18 months old, but, um, come this fall, we will be in 20 Bloomingdale's, which is the majority of them, uh, as well as a high number of Equinox gyms. I think in about 30 Equinox gyms this fall. Um, and then Nordstrom just picked us up in a couple of stores as well. So, uh, if you're, if you're in a specific area and you'd like to see the um, apparel in person, you can come to our website, drop us a line, and we'll tell you the story that's closest to you. 
What's your average price point? Because I know my listeners are going, hey, this is great. If I want to pick something up, uh, what's this going to cost me approximately? So the shirts and shorts tend to run around $68 each, and then it just really varies from there. Um, and as I said, it, you know, it kind of costs more because it costs more to make because of the fabrics and, and fibers that we use. The big box brands tend to spend anywhere between two to four dollars a yard on fabrics. Higher end brands like us, we spend anywhere between eight and 12 yards on fabric. And that has nothing to do with scale. Um, scale will give you slight price improvements. It has everything to do with quality. So um, we might cost a little bit more than kind of the big box brand, but because we go direct to consumer and we really focus on that as a segment, the uh, the savings on the quality you're getting is is dramatic. Yeah, I mean, the thing that has really stuck with me through this conversation is 15 washes is the average number of washes for your you know, average sports. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So, you know, I guess one of the benefits of paying a little bit more to get Roan Apparel is... You're going to be able to wear your clothing a lot longer than you would some of the typical clothing that sports and apparel clothing. Yeah, a lot longer and in a lot more scenarios too. I mean, that's kind of the big thing for for me is we, you know, we wanted to build a product that had style, you know, all the time and performance when you needed it. So if you're out with friends and you don't have time to go home and change, you can wear the same shirt and go work out in it and it's going to work in both scenarios. We have some shirts that we use what's called a high stylized V neckline. There are a lot of guys who don't like V necklines, but this is this has a fit of a crew, so it's up on your neck, but the style of a V. So it's not a deep V, it's a very high V, but it's a small fashion element that we can kind of help guys um, you know, look good and, and the feedback that we get from, you know, wives and girlfriends is my husband or my boyfriend or my dad, they all look so much better when they're in your gear. And so we're actually doing a campaign right now where we're going around to offices and people are finding, you know, what they typically wear at the gym and replacing them with our stuff just so they can see the difference. And it's been, it's been awesome to do because people get the value proposition right away when we do that. Yeah. I was going to ask you, so men wear your product how do you market yourselves beyond what you just described? And, you know, have you really honed in on who your target audience is? Yeah, I mean, we know that our target customer um, is generally 25 to 45, very active, works hard um, professionally, but then also takes their active life seriously, you know, is working out three to five times a week um, and uh, is, is, you know, cares about the quality of the clothing that they wear. We do market to women because, uh, as we all know, um, they control a significant portion of household spend. And um, I would say about 30% of the people that come to our website and make a purchase are women. And generally, they're just making the purchase for, you know, a, a guy in their life. Just a few minutes left with Nate Checkets. He is the co-founder of Roan Apparel. That's R-H-O-N-E, and you can find them on Twitter at Roan Apparel. So your dad, Dave, was once the youngest GM in NBA history. At 28 years old, he was named the GM of the Utah Jazz. He's had a successful career in sports and business. What lessons have you learned from him? You know, he's just an incredible man and individual. You know, one of the things that I feel most proud about in regards to him is he's, everything that people think 
he is and more. He, you know, he's just he's very principled. He's very ethical. He was always a dad first before he was a, a businessman. He came to every single one of my high school football games and um, still to this day is a huge support uh, and pillar for me to lean on. I think, I think the thing that I've learned most from him is surround yourself with really, really talented people. Um, he'd be the first to tell you that a lot of his success has been on the backs of very smart and talented and creative people that he's been able to attract and hire. And I'm trying to institute that same policy in building this company, finding really talented overachievers who work hard and care about what they do. And I think that's been um, the biggest thing that I can attribute any of our success to is the team that we put in place. No, I think that's very good advice. And, you know, I love your background too. You've worked at a number of different places and now you're, you know, really putting all of that knowledge to the test with Roan Apparel. So uh, congratulations on that. Again, you can go to RoanApparel.com and that's R-H-O-N-E is how you spell Roan. You can also find them on Twitter at Roan Apparel. Nate, thank you again for making the time. Thank you for the pieces that you sent. Uh, Really impressed with what you're doing, your background, and the best of success to you. Of course. Thanks so much, Brian. It's a privilege talk. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger, powered by Postano. More of the show coming up. So let's love while we're young. Hello, my name is Sophia Berger. I want to tell you about the Pixie Project. The Pixie Project matches pets to the right people. The Pixie Project takes pride in finding matches for both people and animals. The Pixie Project also offers low-cost veterinary assistance. My family worked with the Pixie Project to adopt our lovable puppy, Scotty. He's a great addition to our family. So if you get a dog or cat, kitten or puppy, you should go to the Pixie Project. To learn more about the Pixie Project, visit them at www.pixieproject.org. This is Sports Business Radio. My guest is Neil Horowitz. He is the host of the Digital and Social Media Sports Podcast. You can find him online at dsmsports.net. You can follow Neil on Twitter at NJH287. Neil, I've been a fan of your work for a long time, so thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. Hey, the uh, the feeling and and the uh, respect is mutual, Brian, so I'm really happy to be on. So what an epic week on Twitter last week. I know we talked about that offline, but the two sports stories that really blew up, and they kind of blew up on the same day, the DeAndre Jordan changing his mind on signing with the Dallas Mavericks to return to the L.A. Clippers story, and we'll talk about that in more detail in a minute. And then the uh, Jason Pierre-Paul finger amputation and the picture that was posted by ESPN's Adam Schefter of JPP's medical record. That also got a lot of discussion on Twitter. But, uh, you know, Twitter has been building for a long time. I know we both know people there, but it seemed like last week was like the culmination of why people should be on Twitter because there was a lot of conversation. Oh, totally. I mean, I think we've seen for a long time now that tweets are starting to become news in and of themselves. You see Sports Center, you see Good Morning America even talking about what is uh, coming up on Twitter. And when I, uh, I spoke to Brian Polyakoff, who works for Twitter Sports, you know, he and several others always characterize it as Twitter is the, the world sports bar. So everyone around you is talking about the same thing, and, and especially in sports because they're all watching the same thing at the same time. 
Well, I think last week, when all this DeAndre Jordan stuff was going down, you had the emojis going back and forth, and no one really knew what to believe. It was for the first time in a while, you couldn't just really get the recap from SportsCenter. You couldn't see all those tweets from Chandler Parsons, from Paul Pierce, from DeAndre Jordan. And for the first time in a while, it was one of those stories where it wasn't so much, here's what happened in the bar. It was, you had to be there. And so unless you were, you were following the saga from tweet to tweet and really seeing how it was playing out, it, it was hard to really uh, describe what was going on. Even the folks at ESPN were just trying to pull up every tweet they could and make sense of the banana boats. And then you read about Blake Griffin uh, looking at photos of tents and whatnot. And really, that's what Twitter's trying to get uh, fans to do in general is make it a destination so that you can't just hear about it from a friend who might be the friend among your group that's the, the biggest Twitter advocate. But now you have to be there. And, and that's really the, a, a big coup for Twitter and, and why last week could be a really big inflection point for them. Yeah, the DeAndre Jordan stuff, like you mentioned, the emojis got a lot of play. Um, and then the pictures. I think Blake Griffin does a terrific job on social media, Twitter and Instagram, and the picture of the chair in front of the door, supposedly at DeAndre <laughs> Jordan's house, and then, like you mentioned, the tent in the backyard. People want to be taken inside that house. You know, the only thing I thought they could have done that would have been phenomenal is if they started using Periscope inside the house. Oh, that, yeah. that would have taken it next level. Oh, uh, per- Periscope offers so many possibilities, and I- I'm sure uh, that would have blown up, like you said. So the Jason Pierre-Paul medical record that was tweeted out by Adam Schefter, you know, I'm someone who thought he could have just said, hey, JPP had his finger amputated. By adding that image into his tweet, he not only could have potentially broken some HIPAA laws, but you know, I think it, it really outraged some people who asked themselves, would I want my medical record posted on social media? So that got a lot of conversation as well. What did you think about that? Well, you're really seeing that uh, Twitter is a true public forum, and there's really not a lot of laws really uh, backing it or have a foundation for it. When Adam Schechter got a hold of that piece, you know, before Twitter existed five, ten years ago, he probably would have gone to his boss at the ESPN. They would have talked about what to do with it, uh, to save it for the newspaper, and talk about it on, um, on, on the television broadcast. But all of a sudden, Schechter had this, has this big million-plus uh, follower platform and puts it out there without really thinking twice to, uh, twice about it too much. And now you have all these questions about where is the line for journalism, especially because Twitter is that that instant uh, instant fan reacting area now, and that you you don't have time to think about it because if you don't put it out there right away, someone's going to beat you to it. Whether it's with a verified source, maybe they get their own photo of of the image, and so you're really having reporters make make high level decisions about what to do with confidential information. And it's, uh, there's really no rhyme or reason to it. They really have to make decisions on the fly, oftentimes not consulting with the superiors. And in this case, you know, it turns out maybe Schefter, as a media member, thought that he was uh, safe from any HIPAA laws, but it certainly got that conversation started. And it's not something that, that Twitter really wants to be a, be a part of, I think, characterizing themselves as maybe playing accessory to information being out there that shouldn't be out there in, in the public eye. And so it's really uh, making media, uh, media entities, I think, start to question the speed and velocity and the empowerment they're giving their, their media members. Because, you know, you don't want to be that person that, that breaks the federal law because you didn't want to get scooped by something. And, and last week, really, I think uh, you had some, some people were uh, putting out text, uh, or x-rays and MRIs of their injuries before that. This is the first time you really had some, some personal confidential information 
that, yes, is very relevant and pertinent to the sports story, but certainly does make you question, are we starting to go too far? Is, is there too much access at this point? Neil Horwitz, the host of the Digital and Social Media Sports Podcast. You can find him at dsmsports.net is my guest. Neil, what makes for a good tweet or Instagram post, in your opinion? What are the elements? Well, I think certainly there are different things for each of the two platforms. Twitter is a lot more about uh, conversation, that two-way communication. It's not so much a broadcast channel. It's very much complementary to what else is going on out there. Uh, and it's that global sports bar feel. And, of course, we're seeing a lot of news breaking on Twitter, but it's really giving context to the news. You're going to get that news elsewhere. The, the worst thing you see sometimes is, you know, uh, especially during like a spring training game or preseason game when all the, the same reporters are tweeting the exact same thing, you know, this guy hits a home run, this guy does a slam dunk, and really it's the ones who are giving you something different. They're really helping complement what's already out there, what's already obvious. I don't need to see that someone has just scored. I'm watching the game. I'm part of that live event. What can you add? How can you be someone that is really adding value, whether it's through content, through a note, uh, through a photo or a periscope of the event? So it's about how you're complementing it. Whereas with Instagram, it's really telling that visual and emotional story. It's giving a, a when you picture a brand, when you picture a team, when you uh, try to picture how your emotional tie is to the team, that's what Instagram is trying to tell. So if you look at someone's Instagram page and it's a bunch of graphics or just straight Getty photos that you would see elsewhere, it's not strong. It's not uh, really speaking on behalf of the brand. And Instagram is really where you're having fans open up their Instagram app you know, multiple times a day, it's extremely popular with especially those younger fans who you're trying to capture and trying to create that emotional affinity, that emotional tie to your team. And if you're not using Instagram for that purpose and it's just another broadcast channel where you're putting another graphic or a photo, it's, it's not really hitting home. So it's a, yes, it's a visual storytelling medium, but it's a visual storytelling medium that is only as powerful as the thought behind it and the emotion behind it. It's where you can really give your brand a true image that, uh, that you can consistently put in front of your fans on a day-to-day basis. Neil, which sports properties are using social media the best right now, whether it's a league, a team, a brand? Who do you think is using social media the, the wisest or the smartest right now? It's hard to just pinpoint one. I think, I think everyone is kind of really good at certain things. I think you know, basically baseball you're seeing be really proactive with their partnerships. They have a lot of leverage with MLB Advanced Media and the fact they really do kind of treat their digital assets as, as a single entity, whereas, you know, the NFL is more uh, every team for themselves and they're, they're trying to do things on their own. I think the NBA is certainly uh, – and going back to MLB, you look at their partnerships with Snapchat uh, most recently and you, know, you saw the Snapchat when MLB Wednesday is now on Snapchat, really trying to target that young audience that they're after. The NBA, I think, is second to none when it comes to an international audience and – they have really been the masters of Vine and really making the most of that video content. And even before when leagues and entities were worried about protecting that content, I mean, for years, Major League Baseball was, was almost made fun of because they wouldn't allow their clips to be on YouTube and they're missing out on all that, that promotion. And the NBA was creating Vines and, and putting them out in real time. They were early, uh, early adopters of Periscope. And there's a reason that you see NBA teams with millions of followers on, on Weibo, for example, or WeChat overseas. So they're really doing the best job of, of really reaching that international audience. And then even, I think, you know, the NHL, a little bit closer to my heart because I've worked in the NHL for, for a handful of years for some teams, and they do the best job, I think, of truly engaging those the fans. 
they don't have the biggest fan base, but they, the advantage they do have is that the fans that they do have are super engaged, are really diehard fans to some degree. And so you're seeing stuff like their, uh, you know, their promotion with, with my playoff story when they had fans, you know, videotaping or recording their moments uh, when they were seeing an incredible playoff game live. And they are really doing an incredible job of leveraging fan content, which is something that a lot of teams and leagues aren't doing to the fullest extent. It's starting to get a little better now. So I think, you know, really, uh, I, think, I don't know if I answered your question completely, but I think there's a, you know, teams and leagues that are definitely doing well in certain areas, but maybe not one that's hitting 100% in every area. So for me, Damian Lillard, Blake Griffin, and J.J. Watt are three of my favorite athletes to follow on social for a variety of reasons. I think they do a great job. Which athletes are you following on social media who you think are doing the best job? Uh, I can tell you there's uh, plenty that, that do a poor job. I hate seeing the ones that, uh, that are just putting out straight brand tweets or tweets that you can tell that they, they didn't write themselves. Right. I think there's um, a lot of the, the, the sort of the backup guys, you know, the guys that you don't expect to be front and center that maybe don't have endor- the big endorsement deals do a really good job. I think uh, you know, a couple of, one guy I liked following a lot for a while uh, in the NHL is a guy named Paul Bissonnette, his nasty 2.0. Um, someone that you know is no longer on an NHL roster. He's playing in the AHL with the Manchester Monarchs right now, I believe, um, or is about to when the season starts back up. And he does a great job of really showing the personality and conversing with fans. It's those ones that uh, that really beat are, are themselves and aren't. And you look at their Twitter timeline; it's not just straight one-way tweets. It's actual conversations with fans, with other players, or even just poking fun at themselves and re- and retweeting fans. And so those, and you really look at Paul Bissonnette as a great example because what he has done by creating an engaged fan base among his followers, he has got endorsement deals not because of how he's played on the ice, because he, he's, like I said, he's not on an NHL team, but he has really created an engaged fan base that is willing to listen to him. And it's a large fan base that's constantly growing and clicks on his links, clicks on offers when he puts it out there intermittently. So he's doing a phenomenal job. I think Rob Gronkowski is another guy to watch. While I don't like all the branded tweets he does, he does give you a little glimpse into, into his real life and actually well, tries to be organic with some of those endorsement tweets. You know, it's not just, I love body armor. It's, here's me drinking body armor after a tough workout. So you get that access. At the same time, you're getting that, that branding activation uh, for Gronkowski's uh, bank account. And so it's those ones that are really uh, not just trying to be, not just trying to use Twitter as another channel to promote themselves or their products, but giving you some some value back, you know, whether it's through conversation or through insight into their everyday life. Just a few minutes left with Neil Horowitz. He is the host of the Digital and Social Media Sports Podcast. Great listen. You should listen to it. You can access it on iTunes or you can go to dsmsports.net. You can follow him on Twitter at njh287. Emerging social media companies that we should watch out for. I know you pay attention to this closely. Are there some companies that you can give our listeners a heads up on that are emerging? Well, I think you certainly want to keep an eye on, on what Meerkat is doing right now. I wouldn't call them emerging anymore. Their, their name's definitely out there if you're involved in the field at all. But their recent uh, play with, with cameos is something certainly keep an eye on, and they have uh, a, a working relationship with Facebook, which of course is still the behemoth uh, next to Twitter. And so to keep an eye on, on how they use this, this function of cameo is allowing people to take over a, bro- uh, a broadcast. And we're really seeing a lot of growth in, in influencer campaigns. You know, every brand wants to be part of an influencer campaign. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens with that. 
And you have a lot of, uh, of smaller uh, up-and-coming ones as well. You know, Steph Curry just is, is investing in the app. It's trying to, to be a more fan-facing app. Uh, of course, you have Mark Cuban getting a, a lot of big news recently for his CyberDust app. Um, I, I think there's still a lot of room for innovation, though, uh, especially as we get more into uh, fan-generated content. It's the ones that are really helping fans uh, do more of what they want to do. And so, you know, whether it's an app that allows you to you know, export your snacks, for example, there's some apps like that that are out there right now. Um, and also ones that are helping you add emojis and stickers to your photos. So I think it's really not so much an emerging app, but the, the way that you see some of these behemoths either acquiring emerging app companies and technology or uh, mimicking each other and mimicking the ones that are, that are really starting to, to make headway out there. You know, before something gets too big, it's like Facebook or Twitter or, or uh, Instagram or their developers have kind of caught on to it already and have started to integrate it themselves, whether it's Twitter integrating their live video and now their enhanced Twitter cards, kind of like Facebook has done, or, or you know, a bunch of brands going to Snapchat to be part of their Discover feature. And so it's, it's really, I think, to look for what's coming next, the best way to do it is go to the app stores, see what apps are really popular out there, and right now it's a lot of the messaging apps and a lot of the, the photo-sharing apps. I think WhatsApp is one to watch about how will Facebook ultimately monetize that. Uh, you're seeing a little bit of brands start to get involved in there, some sports teams. We've seen WeChat sort of and Line uh, successfully monetize the, the uh, overseas versions of the messaging apps. So I think WhatsApp is one to watch over the course of the next six months. It's what is Facebook going to do with those 700 million and growing uh, monthly active users, and, and you know how will brands and sports teams play into that? I am not a fan at all of selfie sticks, but we saw something interesting around the Major League Baseball All-Star Game this week, the snap bat. Tell people what the snap bat is and how it was utilized around the All-Star Game. It was really cool to see. Uh, you know, Yahoo did a little bit of behind-the-scenes story of it with with one of the Twitter Sports Partnerships guys, and basically they said, you know, we 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 know we want to have something to do with selfies at the All Star Game, and let's have some fun with it. Let's just not see, use a straight up selfie stick. Let's you know make it into a baseball bat. Um, and so they basically created a a baseball bat and stuck a little uh, little phone on the end of it to uh, to allow people to take selfies off and using their their snack bat. Which, uh, which a little bit ironically had nothing to do with Snapchat, despite uh, MLB's partnership with, with that platform. But it, it, it was a lot of uh, a lot of popular selfies came out of that, and I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing some more uh, branded selfie sticks out there. Whether it's a sports team branding selfie sticks to give out uh, at games, or you know, a brand like a, a phone brand taking advantage of that. It really, you know, selfies are here to stay. And how are teams going to facilitate that and take advantage of the fact that they know fans are at their games taking selfies? How can we help them take selfies, help them share selfies? I don't think you're going to see a, a, a mass uh, shelf at the team store selling selfie sticks. I think that just is going to lead to too much, uh, too much trouble during the game. But I think you're going to see teams start to look at, uh, starting to get better at looking at what fans are natively doing rather than trying to force them to do things that they want them to do. Looking at what are fans currently doing themselves and how can we make that better, infuse our brand into it, take advantage of that fan-generated content and drive home some of our goals, whether it's getting more excitement about the game and, and making uh, showing people how much fun you're having there or activating with a sponsor and having you know, some sponsored selfie contests. And you're starting to see that a little bit now, and, and the Snap app was just uh, part of it, uh, part of showing how selfies are becoming mainstream. And, and if you're not uh, doing something with selfies with all your fans uh, taking those already, then you'll move behind the eight ball. 
Neil, before I let you go, a lot of times on this show, people want to know, like, how did Neil become an expert in digital and social media in the sports space? Tell our listeners a little bit about you and uh, the path that you've taken to where you are right now. Oh, certainly. Well, I came up uh, in, in NHL ranks and, you know, from day one coming up in sort of the national era of social media, you have to always pay attention. You know, don't uh, don't worry about imitating. Imitating is flattery. Uh, and so some things that I do to constantly keep up with what's the latest and greatest, always keep track of hashtags. You know, I have my, my tweet deck open. I have a column that is all about SM Sports, Sports Biz, sponsorship. You keep up with all the Twitter chats. You follow a lot of the folks that are putting uh, consistent good content out there, like yourself at SB Radio, uh, listening to podcasts like Sports Biz Radio and uh, the, the podcast with uh, the Tower of Sports with Troy Kirby and learning from those folks. And finally, another thing that, that I do, which I think everyone that works in this industry, and even if you're not directly in a social media role should, should do, is every night, one team, look at one team in the minor league space, the professional space, Look at their, their social media sites. Look at their website. Look at their Facebook page. Look at their Twitter page. Look at their Instagram. What are they doing? What are they doing well? Are they doing anything that you could you could imitate or emulate? And what are they not doing as well? You know, is there something that they're missing out on? You're like, oh, they have a big opportunity here. And you, if you do that one team every single day, you will learn so much and you'll stay ahead of the game. And so it's you know it's keeping track of all those conversations and also networking as well. You know, when when uh when you follow me back on Twitter, for example, right. I made sure to take note of that and started a, a more proactive relationship. When someone follows you on Twitter or connects with you on LinkedIn or vice versa, don't just say, "Oh, great, we're uh, you know we're buddies now." Reach out, send a LinkedIn message saying, "Great to connect with you. I really love that how you did this with your team." Or you know, send a direct message saying the same thing. Great to meet you. Uh, I love to have a, a chat sometime on the phone or get coffee if you're in my neck of the woods. And so it's being proactive with networking, being proactive and looking uh, looking for examples out there. And you know, using all that downtime, all that free time when you're you're binging on Walking Dead or something like that, and and looking up that one team or writing that one LinkedIn message because it all adds up over time, and that's how you that's how you uh, keep keep yourself in stock. Outstanding insight from Neil Horowitz. He's the host of the Digital and Social Media Sports Podcast. You can find it on iTunes. His website is dsmsports.net. You can follow Neil on Twitter at njh287. Neil, it's been a pleasure. We've got to do this more often. Uh, so much fun. I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. Never a dull day. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter. Twitter.com slash SBRadio. Powered by Postano. We'll have a Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to, glad to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. 
Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Karina LeBlanc. She is a women's pro soccer player. She's been the goalkeeper for Team Canada since 1998. She's made over 110 appearances. She was 18 years old when she debuted. The World Cup was her last international competition, but she still plays for the Chicago Red Stars of the W or the NWSL. You can follow her on Twitter at Karina LeBlanc. Karina, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for making the time. Uh, you know, we were talking off air before we started rolling tape on this. The emotions of playing in your last World Cup, your last international competition. What was that like when you stepped off the field for the last time? It was it was ex- extremely emotional. I mean, for me personally, we lost, so it wasn't the way we wanted to go out. And before the tournament, when I announced my retirement, I said I'd wanted to do it at BC Place in Vancouver because that's my hometown, and I wanted to do it in front of my friends and family who've been there along with me for this almost 18-year journey and wave that final goodbye in front of, like, friends and family, but uh, also, more importantly, Canadians that inspired me for so long. And it was everything I wished for except for the loss. So, you know, in my head, I'd hoped it would be with a a win and the journey would end on a positive note. But I'll tell you what, like... Canadians just blew me away. And, again, it wasn't even just the Canadians. It was Americans, too. But as I was doing that last lap, I saw signs of thank you for, you know, 18 years of representing this country and thank you for everything. And then some people yelling, please don't retire. And, you know, it was, I mean, people recognized it. And, you know, for me, I think it's when you leave, you recognize what you may have accomplished and just the way that people were and, you know, seeing people cry, it, it was it was pretty powerful. And just even bumping to people on the streets, it, it's it's just been an incredible last wave. And you know, obviously we wanted to win that game, but to be able to do it, I honestly saw some people in the stands that I honestly had played with over 20 years ago, and wow. they showed up. So it was it was emotional. I mean, you know, you're waving. You're crying because you lost. There's the, that emotion of defeat. There's the emotion that this is the last time. And then you look up and you see somebody with a sign saying, remember me, we played together when we were 15, you know? And it's like, wow, exactly. And there were so many things. I, 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 I honestly wish I could have just slowed down time, just had that moment last for longer so I could take in all the different emotions because it was like... I, I mean, it, it sounds weird, but I'm really, like, proud of myself. And, and the way that people were, I was actually proud of, of the people who showed up and were grateful for something I'd done just because I love playing a sport, you know? So it was pretty incredible. Well, it shouldn't sound weird to say that you're proud of yourself. What <laughs> what an amazing career that you've had. And like you said, people holding signs in the stand saying, I played with you when you were 15, you know, 20 years ago. That's phenomenal for anyone's career uh you know it sounds like you were able to take some mental snapshots of those moments which is even cooler for people who have never been to a world cup much less played in one like you have how would you describe the atmosphere because i'll tell you watching it on tv it just seems like 
one of the biggest sporting events you could ever imagine. Yeah, I mean, for for a soccer player, the World Cup is actually bigger than the Olympics. And, you know, I'll, I'll say this. I mean, this was my first fifth World Cup, and this one will go down in the books as the best because it was at home. You know, I mean, right. there's something to be said when the stadium sold out. You know, you step out in front of 56,000 people, and the minute they see you, the place just erupts. And it's not like, yeah, it's like an eruption of pride and proudness. And and it's not just, oh, thanks for showing up. It's like screams of joy, and you hear the passion in people's voices. And for that to happen... Then that, and we're talking about warm up. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then, you know, something happens in the game of soccer, you know, whether it's a save or a goal or anything. And you, you almost, in a sense, can control the crowd. I mean, I know there was one point when we were down and we started just pushing our hands up in the air and the, the, everyone just like listened to us. And, you know, it, it, it's hard to describe because you actually dream of this moment so many times as a kid. You know, you go into the backyard, and for me as a goalkeeper, I dream of making that save, and the crowd erupts, and you like you 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 write the script in your head. But then, and then an occasion like the World Cup, where the whole country is watching you, and in many instances, the whole world is watching you, and you have that moment. You just the emotions that you feel within, because you know that they're actually cheering for you, and this like the story and all the hard work had now come to this one moment that moment becomes such a beautiful thing. So I want to ask you a question, and I'm sure you've been asked a lot since the World Cup ended, but 25 million people tuned in to watch the final match between the U.S. and Japan. If I appointed you the czar of women's soccer right now, how would you capitalize on the momentum from the entire World Cup to grow women's soccer? I know we asked ourselves this question back in 1999 when Team USA won, you know, the World Cup back then. I know your team Canada, but still it's North American soccer. You play in the NWSL. How do we take advantage of the momentum from Women's World Cup to grow women's professional soccer in North America? Well, I mean, it's it's, it's not a like a one-step answer. I think one thing is is for us to recognize now that the the target market is obviously for us. We want to inspire young girls, and you see that you see that because more girls are playing sports, more girls are playing soccer, and now for them they can have their dream. Like for me, my heroes were the Michael Jordans of the world, who again they weren't right in touch. I could, you know, like it was a male, and but I still had that as a dream, and I and if I wanted, I could travel to see him play. But now these girls have us with NWSL. They have the opportunity to have us on a weekend basis, go and see them play and make their dreams become a reality. And they really see, like, they get to touch us and feel us. And it, it cracks me up because it's still, like, young girls freak out when they see me. And I go, boo, because I'm like, hey, I'm just a normal person. You know, I, I just yeah. had this crazy dream. I worked hard, and, and this is what's happened. But I think now it's for the, the reality is that it's no longer just the young girls that are watching women's sports, no longer the young girls that are watching women's soccer. And it's to capitalize on that. I mean, I was telling the other day, I, I had a 50-year-old man, and I mean a man's man. You can tell he spends a lot of time at the gym. And he walks up to me, he passed by, and then he turned around and came back, and he said, hey, you're the goalie, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, you know what? You make me so proud to be Canadian. And this grown 
man started crying in the wow. middle of the street in front of me. And for me, like, if I rewind 18 years ago, almost 18 years when I started with the national team, like, I mean, I could walk a million streets, nobody would know who I was. And, and then it, it evolved into young girls. But now you have the world watching. It's an opportunity for us to, to really tap into the fact that, I mean, you look at the final, and it's so many different, like, dynamics of people that are there. You know, it's no longer just the young girls. It's young boys wearing women's jerseys. It's the CEOs of companies. It's, it's, it's everybody. Because they've understood that, like, and I'm not comparing us to any other sport because I can only speak from the sport I play, but they're seeing the passion that we play. And we've done this for so many years, and there's no dollar sign as a reason why we've done it. We've done it just for the proud and pure joy that we love the sport. And it's the platforms now that we see. Like, I mean, for me personally, I've been able to, you know, have platforms. I got to speak at the United Nations General Assembly in an event last summer. And that, for me, it was like, okay, wow, like, what relevance do I have here? Because this is not a soccer audience, but it's an audience that wants to hear me speak about my passions and, and me understand that soccer has allowed me to understand what my greater purpose is on this earth. And I think, again, it's about capitalizing that on most soccer teams, you have 23 educated women who've graduated from college, different backgrounds, and they're good at different things, and really marketing that and, and using what we've learned from teamwork to leadership to, to being successful and, and starting to talk about the platforms that the sport creates in life. Prina, I get asked this question all the time about the setup of the NWSL. It's my understanding that the players in the league, like yourself, your salaries are paid for by your national team. Is that correct? And, you know, we also saw the NWSL commissioner come out since World Cup and say he's been contacted by as many as six potential owners about expansion in that league. Do you think the league can support expansion? I would love to see an expansion. I mean, I mean, personally, you're asking someone who's been through all three leagues. You know, I was in the WSA and the WPS, and now this. I think this definitely has a foundation for growth. And I think what we saw from this World Cup is that growth is necessary because, I mean, I'd love to see it expanded to Canada. I mean, Vancouver has the infrastructure for that. I mean, again, you see sold-out crowds. I mean, we can we can create a professional team there. Um, you know, there's different pay structures. Yes, we're paid by our federation. Uh, other players are paid by the club. I think there's, and that's because there's been a lot of thought and detail into how can we make this league survive. And so I think that's the pl- been the plan for the beginning is to start with this base so you can grow. And, and I'm hoping that that's what happens. Karina LeBlanc, women's pro soccer player, Team Canada goalkeeper. She's also a goalkeeper for the Chicago Red Stars of the NWSL. So did I see correctly on your Twitter feed that you sat next to the Prime Minister of Canada during the World <laughs> Cup final? How cool was that? I, I did. I did. Uh, you know, it's funny because John Erdman, our head coach, you know, I was like, hey, John, this is our prime minister, Hyper Herper. And he he just said to me, he goes, of course you'd be sitting next to the prime minister for the game. <laughs> He's like, why am I not surprised? And I just kind of chuckled. Uh, you know, I had a great time, and, you know, I'm not a politician, so I didn't talk politics. I talked, we had a great conversation. You know, I asked some questions of, like, 
you know, what's the hardest part of your job and what, what makes you wake up every day and be excited about the day? Just things that relate to my life and how I live life. And, you know, the answers that he gave me were, were true. And we just talked about life. We talked about soccer. I told him some of the background and some of the players. And we had a really good time. And I got a chance to walk over and meet uh, Vice President Biden. And, you know, it's it just funny because John, John Herdman, our head coach, he just said, you know, everyone says you're going to be okay. And he's like, I firmly believe that whatever you do in your next chapter, you're going to be okay because who else doesn't get to play in the final that just happens to be sitting next to the prime minister. So, you know, I, I, I don't know how all these things happen. I love when they happen. And, you know, I, 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 I chatted with him about the next chapter of my life and he had some great advice for me. And he just said, you know, you've done this for so long and most people have several careers in their life. And, you know, if this is one career and you spent almost 18 years doing it and you were so successful at it, bring some of those tools into the next the next chapter of your life and you'll have success. So I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with him. That's fantastic. Well, you know, I watched you when you played for the Portland Thorns. I'm based in Portland. And, you know, I just think you're <laughs> you're a really smart, engaging, thoughtful athlete person and an athlete second. Oh, thank you. But you know, I have no doubt that you're going to do fantastic in whatever the next chapter is for you. You should be like a special ambassador to uh, to Canada or something for sport. Or you know, I could see a career in in speaking, doing speaking engagements. I just think you you have a wealth of knowledge in a number of different areas that would be valuable. I've told you before. You know, I have a ten and a half year old daughter, and she plays soccer, and she's into sports, and she does a lot of other things too. But you know, she looks up to you and to the uh, other soccer players who play. And, and, you know, it is great that she has female athletes that she can look at as role models. And, and frankly, uh, sometimes the female athletes are a lot better than the male athletes for her to, <laughs> to look up to. So, or I should say it's a little safer for her to look up for the, to the female athletes. So, you know, I, I agree with what you say about growing the sport from kind of the the bottom up with the young soccer players and getting their interest. But I do think what I'm seeing, and this is the difference in, in my lifetime between like 1999, what I saw and what I just saw recently in 2015, is the 50-year-old that you described that stopped you, you know, in the street. Those people are really starting to pay attention to women's soccer more so than they have you know, maybe back in 1999, it's not just the soccer fan that's paying attention. It's the casual fan that is now also engaged. Absolutely. And that's the beautiful thing. And I think for us in hosting a World Cup, that was one of our goals. I mean, everybody wants to win the World Cup, but we wanted to try to connect and inspire a nation. And, you know, for us, I think that's where we see the true success of the World Cup at home. I mean, we didn't get the result we wanted on the field, but... And we are able to walk away and, and see that, like, we we can't walk a block without being stopped. And it's not like, you know, a hey, excuse me, where's the next, uh, I don't know, Lululemon. But it's, it's hey, let's address you and thank you for helping us be proud to be Canadian. And thank you for helping us, like, acknowledge that this game of women's soccer is a beautiful game. And, and I think that's where growth comes. So there's the the pride for country. You're now again playing for the Chicago Red Stars. How long do you plan on continuing to play in the NWSL? 
question. Or do you know? Uh, oh, no. I mean, I think I think for me, I'm going to see how the season goes. I would love to wrap it up, and I know Portland fans are going to hate me to say it. I would love to wrap it up with a, a, another championship. Um, I know it's going to end in Portland, and for me, again, I, I, I said this before the World Cup with Canada, but I would love to, in my professional career and career in the city of Portland in the championship game because, I mean, I'm in Chicago and I love being here and I think Portland knows that they will always hold a dear place in my heart. Even at the final, I mean, there was a lot of people from Portland there and everyone still came up and said, we love you. And, you know, when I say I love you guys back, it's true. I mean, that the environment in Portland is special. It's unique. As a professional athlete, it's something you'll never forget, no matter where you go, because the fans are invested in the players, and, and they live true to, to who you are. I mean, here I am. I'm no longer with Portland, but Portland still shows me the love. And, you know, as an athlete, that is something that is rare, and that is something that is special, and that is something that, like, you, like I know I left the Portland family because I got traded, but it feels like in the hearts of Portland, how do you say Portlandians? Yes. I, I never left. So, I mean, I think for me, if that if that is how it ends, I think saying farewell to something that's been a part of my life for so long, it'd be tough to beat that. Well, that certainly would be the storybook ending for those of you in our <laughs> worldwide audience who don't know about the passion that, that fans have in Portland for soccer. So the Portland Timbers of Major League Soccer have a 12,000-person waiting list for season tickets. So their games are sold out. There's a 12,000-person waiting list. And for the Portland Thorns of the NWSL, they average about sixteen to 17,000 fans per game. So their games are close to sold out. So people call Portland Soccer City USA for a reason, and it's because of that kind of turnout from the fans. And like you said, Karina, long after you've left, they're still embracing you and reaching out to you. Yeah, and that's what's just special. I mean, on our schedule, I know we come out there, uh, I think, August 7th or that weekend. And I'm telling you, I'm looking forward to that because it, like, it's, it's, those are the games that just get your juices going and you're excited to be there. Because when you play in front of a crowd, and that's what it was like playing in front of a crowd in the World Cup, it's like... The fans are so excited and they're passionate and they're sharing your love for the game. You know, you step in the field and you hear them. That's what you love playing in front of, you know, and, and that's what's special. And, you know, for me, it's special here in Chicago because this is the team I play for and this is the city that I represent. But I'd have to say my favorite team on the road, hands down, is Portland. So last question before I let you go. If I said to you, I think that there needs to be a committee of smart people like yourself put together to figure out how to continue momentum from World Cup for women's professional sports and, and soccer, obviously, being at the top of that list. Who else do you engage on that committee? Who else do you reach out to and, and try and say, all right, you know, I, these are people I want to get at the table because I think they can help us really make women's soccer more of a, a household sport and, and sustainable? Um, I think you have to go to back to the pioneers of the sport as well. I mean, you know, the ones that were around in 99 and asked them, like the Mia Hams and the Lils, Christine Lillies and the Julie Foudies, and asked them what happened, what did we do well that kept it going, and what could we work on. 
Um, and then, you know, you have to bring in some of the U.S. national team players now um, because, again, they're the faces and see, like, what can we do now to make sure it's sustained. And then you have to bring in some of the players who are young and say, you know, this is what we need to do and this is what we need to keep doing. I mean, when I was after the 99 World Cup, I, went in, I had Christine Lilly as the captain of our team. And for me, I was a young little rookie then. And I had Joe Cummings as our GM, and I was in the office, and I was listening to Lil and following her lead because for me it was like, hey, I these these are the ones who've paved the way, and I, and I want this to continue. So I think it's it's a combination of the ones that have come before us, the ones who are here now in the future, and say let's all be on the same page, and I'll learn and let's ask the hard questions, like because there are things that worked after the '99 World Cup that we can learn from, and there's things that didn't go well and we can learn from that and take that and you know have the faces that are in the game today because I think all if you ask all the U.S. national team players they'll agree that they want this to continue and it's not about themselves but it's about the future generation and then the future generation to understand that you know you're gonna have to pay your dues a bit you're gonna have to do the stuff that's not fun but it's for the long run so that they can be in the position that some of the players are in now and continue to pass that torch. See, and that's the thing that I admire so much about the female athletes. I've worked with uh, soccer teams and other female athletes. I think that the female athletes understand that they need to promote their sport a little bit more than the males do, and they need to do things that are positive to generate positive publicity and be top of mind. And you know, I just respect the female athletes so much because I think they just have that mindset that we'll do whatever it takes to promote our sport and to make this a success. And sometimes you don't get that same uh, level of cooperation with the male athletes. Well, I can't speak for the male because I'm a woman. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, I think I think that's something that we talk about, though. You know, I mean, we talk about it, and you know, that's part of locker room talk. Of you know, sometimes the younger generation, you're going to have to go out and do those appearances where, yes, two, three people may show up, but those two or three people are going to make a difference, you know? Like, I mean, I did that years ago. I did those appearances that, you know, you're like, okay, there's not many people here, but those two or three people are going to pass the word on to, you know, you, you never know where the domino effect's going to start and where it's going to end, but I think it's conversations that we have, and, you know, for me, I think, like, on our team, we had a Kadisha Buchanan, you know, the... 17, 18, 19-year-olds who, who are listening. And I'm like, this, I, when I first came to the national team, we, we, we stayed in the barracks. It was eight to room, you know. And before me, people used to bill it, you know. It wasn't that you, we were staying at these amazing hotels and getting these five-star meals every day and nutrition was a priority. Like, there's people who came before me that paved the way. And I think it's important for my generation to make this next generation understand that, you know, what you see from the U.S. national team didn't happen overnight and it's the ones that came before them and that's what was part of the celebration is you're celebrating the ones that come before you but you're making it better and you leave knowing that you left it in a better place than when you first came in. Karina LeBlanc she is a legend for Team Canada made over 110 appearances started all the way back in 1998 she's still playing for the Chicago Red Stars of the W the NWSL you can follow her on Twitter at Karina LeBlanc thank you so much congratulations on the cap to a fantastic international career look forward to uh continuing to watch you in the NWSL hope that I see you maybe when you're out here in Portland and 
Uh, I look forward to staying in touch with you as you figure out your next chapters uh, going forward. Thank you. And you can help me with figuring out what that next chapter is. Make sure when I'm important, then you guys share for me too, like you always do, okay? I definitely (laughs) will. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more powered by Postano. SBR will be right back. Hi, it's Brian Berger. Here at Sports Business Radio, we are proud to work with our partners, Pastano. They make a sports-proven visual marketing platform that I've personally been amazed to see. Teams like the Dallas Cowboys, Boston Red Sox, LA Kings, and Cleveland Cavaliers all use Pastano to engage their fans. When sports teams and fans tell their stories together, amazing things can happen. Every fan has a story. Whether you want to put selfies on the Jumbotron, create a dynamic social media command center, or activate a hashtag campaign on your website, Pastano can design an amazing social experience true to your brand. Even better, using the Pastano platform can pay for itself through selling sponsorships. As an example, the Kings sell sponsor space to Toyota and other clients and run the ads using Pastano. Want to see what your team's social content could look like? Schedule a demo today. Go to pastano.com slash sports. If you're a fan of this podcast, you understand the real power of engaging your fans. And these guys get it. That is P-O-S-T-A-N-O dot com. This is Sports Business Radio. We are back to wrap up this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. I want to thank our guests, Nate Checkett, Neil Horowitz, and Karina LeBlanc. Really good conversations with them. Enjoyed them all this week. Thank you to our show staff, Brian Griggs, our executive producer, Josh Blank, Doug Zanger, and Diane Penny. Thanks to our friends at Pastano for powering Sports Business Radio. Follow them online at Pastano.com or on Twitter at Pastano. That's P-O-S-T. A-N-O. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio. We're rated in the top 100 business news podcasts. You can find every show that we've done since 2006. We started right when iTunes started podcasting. So we've got a library of, I believe, over 350 episodes that you can find on iTunes. You can also find our show via the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps. Follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. Our Twitter feed was named the top 100 sports business must follows on Twitter for 2014 by Forbes. And we're looking for strategic partners for the Sports Business Radio Roadshow. If you want to be part of our roadshow where we take our conversation with a marquee key decision maker from the world of sports to a university and conduct the conversation in front of a live audience, please reach out to me at Brian. B-R-I-A-N at sportsbusinessradio.com. We're also looking for sports business programs at universities who would like to host that conversation. So again, Brian at sportsbusinessradio.com if you're interested in being part of our Sports Business Radio Roadshow. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio.